Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 149 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I'm uh, really intrigued by today's guest. His name is Chris Vallotton, and I know a lot of you probably know him. He's from Bethel Church in Redding, California, and um, God has been doing some incredible things at that church. And one of the reasons I was anxious to have this conversation is, uh, and you know this if, if you know, you're a regular listener, is often there are divisions in the church. And it boils down to, are you charismatic? Are you not charismatic? Are you, you know, reformed? Are you not reformed? Are you, are you too charismatic? <laughs> you know, the whole deal, right? And I just think as we move into a post-Christian era, what unites us is greater than what divides us. And so I think it's really important, even if you know, maybe you express yourself differently, your faith differently, you have slightly different understandings of what um, the Christian faith teaches on certain issues that we really focus on what's similar. And I think you're going to love today's interview because uh, Bethel is a very well-known church, a highly influential church, but also not without its controversy. But uh, man, when you connect with a guy like Chris, there's just so much I think that we have in common and he's so honest in this conversation and so real. I think, I think you're really going to love it. Plus, he's a phenomenal teacher. If you've ever heard him preach or you've read one of his books. Also got to say, most of you probably know Bethel Church uh, as much for its music as anything else. And uh, I listen to Bethel music. We sing Bethel music. You know, you guys know all that. I even had a chance uh, earlier this year to sit down with some of their band at lunch. And that was a great conversation. Just super people. So I think you're really going to love it. And um, if you're not from this particular tradition, I hope this opens your mind and your perspective. It's it's going to be great. So he's my guest today, Chris Vallotton. Really excited for this. Also want to say uh, thank you to you listeners hanging in there in the dog days of summer. I know some of you are getting ready to boot up your ministry. You've got an August start. Some of you start in September, kind of like we do. Some of you maybe in October. But the fall is coming. So enjoy these last fumes of summer. Right after I record this, I'm popping out on my bike for like a 40K ride. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you're like, wait, 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 40 kilometers, how many miles is that? Uh, 17,000. Okay, that's how athletic I am. No, it's about 25, I think. I think, yeah. Anyway, it's going to be a lot of fun. So enjoy uh, what's left of your summer or vacation. And uh, speaking of getting ready for the fall, are you ready? Are your volunteers ready? You know, one of the keys to really leading an effective church is to having a synchronized team of volunteers. And this was really pressed home to me when we did the Canadian Church Leaders Conference back in June. Our volunteers crushed it. And people kept asking us. We had hundreds of church leaders there. They were going, okay, what did you do with your volunteers? What do you do with your volunteers? You know what you do? You train them. You align them around mission, vision, values. And it takes a while to do, but now there's help. And if you haven't yet checked out trainedup.church, why don't you do that right now? Because... You're trying to get your volunteers together. It's hard to get them all in the room. Well, why not take your training online? And trainedup.church can help you in a number of different ways. Number one, if you don't have time to do training, they've already got stuff that's done for you. You can just access that, point your team to their website, which will have your unique portal on it, and away you go. Then you can even see who trained and who didn't. So you can say, you know what? Our team is 90% trained or 100% trained. How often can you do that in traditional forms of training? 
You may be a larger church, have your own resources. You can shoot your own video, your own training. Then it's once and done. That's it. You do it once, it's done for the season. And your volunteers, even as you onboard them, they can follow along with it. And then finally, uh, let's say you want to do your own training, but you lack the gear. Well, they have a package for that too. So check them out at trainedup.church. Make sure you uh, check that out. And then also want to thank Tony Morgan and the good, good people at Unstuck. They are just a great resource. I've literally been reading Tony Morgan for over a decade. He's one of the early bloggers. And the Unstuck group is something he started a number of years ago. And maybe you feel like you're not very excited about this ministry season because your church is stuck. Well, how stuck is your church? You can actually find out by taking the Unstuck Church Assessment. It's free, and you can get it at the unstuckchurch.com. So I would suggest you do it if you're a senior leader, but also maybe have a couple of team members or board members do it, and then you can figure out what stage is your church at, like how stuck are you? So take the free Unstuck Church Assessment at the unstuckchurch.com, and please tell Tony, and please also uh, tell the good folks, Scott Magdalene over at trainedup.church that I sent you. So without further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with Chris Vallotton from Bethel Church. Chris, welcome to the podcast. A lot of us have heard about what's happening in Redding, California. It's a uh, it's a pretty small town, right? But with a huge church with a massive global influence. And you've been there for many, many years. I guess the church started almost 70 years ago, 60 years ago, but in sort of the modern era. Uh, you've been there for the ride. Tell us a little bit and and like frame us about, because there's a lot of small town church pastors listening. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what God has been doing over the last few decades. Well, good. I will. I'll tell you a little bit about Reading, digress, and give you just a little bit of our history. But uh, Reading is a city of about 89,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I came here 19 years ago. Bill Johnson, who I've been with for 30, this is our 38th year together. Um, we were together in a little church in a town called Weaverville. So you, Weaverville. Know, you, you can't you can't sound like you got an education if you're from Weaverville. <laughs> that was a town of about twenty nine hundred to three thousand, and we had, Bill came uh, to that church thirty eight years ago, and he uh, he it was forty people when he came, and um, wow. we that church grew to around two two hundred fifty to three hundred, depending on you know the season. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then he came here, uh, I'm here 19 years. So he's been here for 21 years wow. and, uh, I came, Kathy and I were in the business world. So we owned nine different businesses, all in the automotive world. We owned auto mm-hmm. parts stores and auto repair shops and an auto consulting company. And so we, we left our, the business world to come and start the school of ministry 19 years ago at, yeah. uh, this church, which was about. The church was about a couple thousand people when Bill came, and a thousand people left when Bill came. I always like to say, I always like to say that they left before I got there. Right, right. It wasn't your fault, not on you, right? My fault. <laughs> and so, uh, so we started a school ministry with thirty-seven students, and uh, that was my primary job when I came here. Was that's why I came to start the school, Kathy and I both. And that school, uh, 19 years later, the school's grown. To, we graduated 2,401 students last year. Wow. We had 953 international students from 65 countries. And, um, and we've become a CBIS. CBIS is a Homeland Security. In America, um, Homeland Security has to approve your school for you to get a visa to come in for education. Right. And so CBIS has two kinds of uh, 
certifications. One is a, um, a vocational school and the other one is a, like a university. Hmm. So we're the largest Steve approved vocational school in the United States with 953 students this year. Wow. And, um, uh, so, and Reading is a town, as I said, about 89,000 people and, uh, an average on an average weekend, about 9,000 people come to Bethel church. Uh, we have lots of services as you can imagine, cause we yeah. have, your you biggest know, room, you were telling people. me, is what, 1,300 people? Well, 1,300 people. is Our biggest room is 900 people. We have two, an overflow room. So, huh. so yeah, we have services, services, services. It's crazy. But three services in this one building on in the morning, one at night, and two services on another building and one at night, and, and then two services on a Friday night. And so it's pretty, it's completely insane, actually. Yeah. We, there's a bunch of us on a, on the teaching team. Of course, Bill Johnson and I and, and Eric Johnson are the main teachers on on a on, on a weekend. But yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Wow. And so, you know, you think about that, that's almost 10% of the town and I'm sure you got out of town guests every weekend, but that's sure. about 10% of the town will be actually in your building on a Sunday morning, which is crazy. It's insane. Yeah, so, and you know, it leads to a lot of, you know, complications in takes about an average of 20 to 30 minutes to actually get parked Wow! on a Sunday. It's crazy. And people keep and then coming. you may get in the building and you may not be able to get your kids in children's church. Because they fill up too, right? They fill up. So we have all kinds of issues. You know, there's good problems and bad problems, we say. We have good problems right now. We've had bad ones, so. <laughs> right, right. So let's go back to uh, when Bill came and the church dropped a thousand people. What Lots yeah. of people have had that experience when there's a change in leadership in yeah. an established church. What caused the exodus and how did you save the day? I'll give you all the credit. <laughs> no, I didn't save the day. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm we just don't kidding. want that on the podcast. <laughs> no, no, we'll have to cut no. that out. <laughs> no, I, I would say, um, well, what happened was the, this church was a very traditional uh, AG church. Very, uh, I'd yeah. say traditional. That's not even really true because I don't know what traditional AG is anymore because there's so many mm-hmm. diverse AG churches. And, so and, Assemblies you know, of God, for those of you who don't yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. And, um, and so they were uh, like, they would have fashion shows and they had Easter plays and, you know, they had large choirs. It was very beautiful. It was great. I say mm-hmm. that as a, not as a negative or positive, but just as a style. And uh, Bill came and he was, um, he was uh, actually uh, touched uh, our whole, um, our whole uh, church was, in our little church in Weirville was touched by the Toronto blessing. Yeah. And also by Wimber's uh, vineyard movement. And so we were very much into the, you know, healing, you know, signs and wonders, miracles, that kind of that, you know, that stream. And then with the Toronto kind of, you know, manifestations, <laughs> the Toronto blessing. Yeah. So we were kind of, you know, mixed up, I would say. I was in seminary at the time. I never went and I regret that now. I wish I would have gone. Back, I was like 20 miles down the road at, at a very traditional seminary, and I should have gone. Well, it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. But I mean, obviously, very controversial in, you know, sure. in retrospect. But so, you know, when Bill came to Bethel, I mean, he said to the leaders, you know, if you want me, I'm only doing revival. Like, that's all I'm doing. So if you want anything else, you need to get somebody else. Hmm. And they said, no, we want you. So, <laughs> So a thousand people left in I, around you know eighteen months or so, and wow. 
And, uh, you know, and as we transitioned to a completely different if, um, style of ministry. And um, so it was, you know, meetings till, you know, one o'clock in the morning and, you know, crazy, just crazy, you know, stuff and people flopping and dropping and crying and laughing. And, you know, it, it was beautiful, but it was also, it was also a, a quite a departure from the, uh, from the, the, the core culture that we, that, that they had created here. Yeah. And so really, and I mean, you can see that whether you're trying to go from traditional Baptist or traditional Anglican or Presbyterian to something different, everybody yeah. who's in your church right now signed up for the way it is. And when you change it, a lot of them leave, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, I always say like, it's easy to, it's, it's not too hard to lead on one side of the river. It's not too hard to lead on the other side of the river. But even Mo, the great Moses couldn't lead people from one, from one season to another. That's you know, Moses sad. couldn't lead them from the land of just enough to the land of more than enough. So, and I think that, you know, we are in a, a, a large, a huge uh, epoch or epic season transition in which God is dealing with the same people in a different way. And uh, it's very difficult for leaders to make that transition because uh, the greatest resistors of the new thing are people who succeeded in the old. Hmm. And uh, if God's That's doing the sad. next thing, it's quite different than when God's doing the new thing. And I think, you know, hmm. Isaiah 42, 9, the former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. So I think that if God's doing the next thing, then those who did well in the previous season still do fairly well. But when God's doing a new thing, you know, what you, what you did in the wilderness doesn't have a whole lot to do with what you're going to do in the promised land. That is very difficult for leaders to make that transition. That's a great insight, actually. I've never heard anyone say that. The difference between the next thing, which would be a progression from what you've currently done, versus a new yeah. thing. And uh, you know what? That's, that's, that's really helpful. That's really clarifying when it comes to change. Now, yeah, Chris, the, we're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into a lot yeah. of what's going on in your life and, and Bethel. But I think a lot of listeners, a lot of leaders um, who are maybe not from the charismatic world, would know yeah. Bethel for its music. I mean, this hugely yeah. explosive music scene that's developed over how many years? I had lunch with some of your musicians. I just sat down with all these people, found out at lunch that they were from Bethel, and we had a great conversation. But that's fairly recent, isn't it, the the School of Music thing, last decade? Well, uh, actually, we, we've had a worship school for uh, 16 years. Okay. So that, that worship school is not... I, I, you know, it's like... It's kind of like God takes a long time to act suddenly. So when people say, <laughs> yeah. "Oh, you this is this just happened," and we're like, "Actually, you heard about it when this album came out or that song was mm -hmm. sung, and suddenly the world was exposed to like, oh, look what Bethel's doing suddenly." It's like, no, actually, you've been doing this for twenty years. So I would say, you know, we started them. We so we have we you know we've had you know Brian Johnson basically writing songs, and then we he started a songwriters group from our school of ministry and they started writing songs collaboratively. That's been going on for probably at least 15 years. And, um, and then, um, little by little, obviously with, you know, as the school grows and there's worship leaders coming from all over the world, we started a worship school that used to be six weeks, now it's two and people come from all over the world for six weeks to, you know, to, uh, learn to write and to, you know, lead worship and all of that. That's been going on for a long time. And then, we started a music label six years ago, which, you know, just exploded. Like it actually mm -hmm. grew, it's actually grown um, 
I don't know, uh, probably, uh, I think it's grown 25 times since the year we started, wow. 25 times larger. So it's just growing. Last year, you, I don't know if you know this, but last year we got, this last year we got nominated for 10 Dove Awards and won six. So, um, you know, it's just like the bless, the favor has, is, you know, I would say what you're probably referring to is the favor that's been on that ministry is probably mm-hmm. six, seven years old. Sure. You know, for new, if you want to say it that way. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, my wife would agree. She always says, you know, you talk about overnight success, it's a long night. It's always exactly. a long night, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. yeah David and, had overnight success with the giant, right? But he's been uh-huh. practicing wilderness for like whoever, you know? Totally. Totally. Um, so how have you developed and nurtured that music culture? Because literally people come from around the world to be part of Bethel. Yeah, I would say that's, you know, Bill Johnson, you know, is, um, he is a worshiper. Um, mm. he, you know, he's a musician and also a songwriter long before his son was. So I, I'd say that, you know, Bill is responsible for the worship culture here. And previous to that, Bill's dad was, a, was the pastor here from, I think, like 1968 to like 1978 or 79. And he, uh, also was the, he was the, founder in our church and our movement of the worship movement where we were singing not just to to god not sorry not just about god but we were singing to god mm-hmm. and earl johnson was the founder in our movement of of ministering to god through worship and so i'd say that's in the johnson blood and and uh and bill's definitely the person who's uh perpetuates the uh the, the you know the desire for the presence of God. Hmm. And that, I mean, you look at Louis Giglio, you look at even Stephen Furtick, who was a worship leader, um, John Wimber, you already mentioned, and the list goes yeah. on and on and on. Andy Stanley, Reggie Joyner, they were actually all worship leaders before yeah. they became leaders in their own right. And there is something about the the heart of the leader as it positions itself. And, and I say this as a non-musician, that, that's really yeah. convicting for those of us who are non-musicians. You know, <laughs> I can't even play that's the cool. radio. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just install one in a car, right? That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was one of the leaders of the worship school and they wouldn't let me sing in the choir. Oh, there you go. There you go. So, what, what do you think are some of that as a non-musician, Chris, what do you think are some of the um, ingredients that make for a great local church music culture? Because I know there's a lot of pastors who wish that they had more of that kind of culture at their church. You already talked about the heart of the leader. Anything else yeah. that sort of strikes you as saying, hey, well, if you pay attention to these two or three things, it tends to create a better music environment? Well, I mean, just simply like who you're leading, who's leading, and what season you're leading them in depends on, determines how you're leading. And so I would say when you're leading creative people, you cannot lead them like you lead your administrative team. Right. So I think creativity needs an R&D culture. It needs a research and development culture. It needs freedom. I, I, would, I would say that we, we jokingly say that leading worship leaders and musicians and artists is like herding cats. It's hmm. much different than, than you know, leading pretty much anywhere, anybody else you're leading. So I think, it's, I think that the challenge, the challenge is you have very sensitive people who need, um, they really do need, a, like they do thrive in a different 
kind of environment where there is risk is actually valued um where um you know for instance time sensitive like you know they they like our worship team doesn't work an eight to five job because you can't Hmm. creative people know you know anyone like you're a writer so you know this like you start chasing a a a vision when you're writing because i you probably like me like i write i paint with words Yep. And I, it's like chasing, it's like chasing this vision through a field of flowers. And it's like, if you don't capture it in the next two hours, it's going to be gone. It may yep. never come back. And so yep. you may stay up all night in, in a, in a, you're in a, you know, in the groove, you might say, mm-hmm. you might stay up all in, into the early mornings, capturing that, that vision on paper. And it, and you know, if you're experienced that you can't say, well, I'll just pick that up in the morning. You can't no. do that with creativity. So, you know, songwriters and, and, and people like that creative people, they need the freedom to chase that, that vision through the field. And, and therefore, therefore they it, it, working on a clock and a calendar. I'm not saying they're, they, you know, obviously have to be there for Sunday morning. They have to practice yeah. all of that stuff, but I'm talking about the creative atmosphere that they live in doesn't work so much on a clock and calendar. I think that's a really good insight, you know, and I, I, I don't know whether you've found this or not. I mean, the only creative thing I do is sort of my writing and yeah. you know that, whether that's a sermon or a book or a, a blog post, but often when, when I'm in that zone and I don't know whether musicians experience that or not, I don't feel like I'm writing. I feel like I'm finding, discovering and downloading. Like it's already there. Like what I'm, what I'm discovering is already there and I'm just accessing it. It's just, it's just kind of weird. And you're right. It's a fleeting moment. And when it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And songwriters really, really experience that. And so, mm. you know, it is, it's like, it's a, it's like a vapor. It's like a hologram. Like it, it, it's, it's slowly fading and you have to capture it. Right. And I think a senior leader, you know, we think in terms of maybe office hours or meetings exactly. or that kind of thing. So yeah. you've created at your school of music a culture that, and, and I think this is the lesson to those of us who are maybe a little more analytical or logical in our day jobs, but it is producing tremendous impact and results. It's just the process is going to be way more scrambled than the linear leader might appreciate. Yeah, or, or, pro, or proactively proactively not highly planned mm-hmm. like, like, okay. I, I would, like i i would say the reason i like i push back is because i would say scrambled sounds like well we don't have a plan because the creative people don't like that i'm like yeah no, yeah yeah we have a proactive plan to give them lots of room does that make sense yeah like white space just like unstructured time exactly. yeah very okay. good that's that's what i'm trying i'm just trying to paint the right picture like we do it's very planned non-planned <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is good to know. Almost like we would think of a retreat. Here's two hours just to, you know, we're not doing anything this afternoon. And yeah, there's no lines on the paper. It's all white. You can draw, you can write, you can do whatever. Just be creative. That's really good. That's super helpful. Well, we want to cover a lot of ground in this. Um, You have a ton of young adults flocking, literally, to like people relocate to go to Reading. The millennials. (laughs) Uh huh. And you have a lot of them, and, and they're a big chunk of your church. 
What are you seeing God do in the lives of young adults, and what are they hungry and thirsty for? Fathers. Wow. You didn't hesitate. Say more. Well, I will say this, that the number one draw in our church would probably be people come for the supernatural, but they stay for for family. Mm. And I'll I'll tell you, everybody is looking for a place to belong. So people belong, believe, and behave. And the challenge is in nor- normal religious cultures, you're never going to get to belong if, if you don't behave. And I'm mm. like, that's reversed. People belong, believe, and behave. And so, you know, you, somebody once said, you know, you'll remember some of what people say to you. You'll remember more of what they show you, but you'll never forget how they make you feel. So true. Robin, Robin Williams made this incredible quote. You know Robin Williams, the famous I do. comedian who, who took his own life tragically recently. He said... People say the worst thing in the world is to be alone. He said, that's Mm. not true. He said, the worst thing in the world is to be with people who make you feel alone. Mm. And so I would say that, you know, the most powerful thing that's happening to everyone, but especially millennials, is they're growing up uh, fatherless and they're starving for connection. So I, people, you know, everyone's trying to figure out, you know, people come with the question, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? And I'm like, wrong question. Who you're supposed to be with? Because until you find your people, you can't find your destiny. Because your mm-hmm. destiny's in your people. So think about it. We do virtual life now, which you know, <laughs> with, with virtual church on virtual TV with virtually mm-hmm. nobody that we virtually don't know, <laughs> and then wonder why we're starving. We can't figure out who we are or what we're supposed to be doing. And all of that, all of that comes from your connection with people. Mm-hmm. So Brene Brown said that, you know, famous TED talk mm-hmm. speaker who's got three uh, social degrees, in, I mean, three degrees in social work. She said, we are neurobiologically wired to need connection. Yeah. Everyone in the world. So we're all looking for connection. So, you know, I would say the number one thing that I, that we, we are finding is that people come here for all kinds of things, but they stay for family. Hmm. That's good to know. How do you, okay, man, there's a lot there. Uh-huh. Why fathers? You didn't say mothers. You didn't say parents. You, you just instinctively went uh, to fathers. Talk about that. Cause a lot of us grew up with fathers. Is it the sense that the relationships broken down? I know a lot of people grew up without a father. Um, and, and sometimes that can be very, you know, specific to a socioeconomic bracket or, uh, yep. or something, but is it everybody just seems to be looking for a father? Well, that's probably, that, that's probably a multi-layer yeah. question, but, but let me say this. First of all, we Americans, Europeans, Canadians, uh, the, mm. the Western world, we are the most fatherless generation in the history of the world who are, who did not lose their fathers in war. Wow. So there have been more fatherless generations before us, but not because they weren't around. Are you with me? I'm in other words, you. we have fathers. We, we have men who fathered children, yep. but they're absent. So it, there is a huge difference between, between my father's yeah. off to war or my father died in war, but he loves mm. me. Mm. And my father lives down the street, but he doesn't come to see me. Or I don't know who, who, whose firm I right. am of. 
which is, I mean, this is, this is the day we live in. So think about it. If, if mom teaches me honor and dad teaches me love and the person who's supposed to teach me love is absent, Mm-hmm. Then not only am I not only do I not learn that I am lovable, but I also often superimpose that over our heavenly Father, and I don't know He loves me. Yeah. So the reason I say fathers is because, well, typically, you know, more typically, mom's involved somewhere. Even if mom's dysfunctional, she's there. Yep. In some way, and and and, and typical mom, and I understand that we're making really broad statements. Sure. But unless mom's a complete drug addict, it is in her nature to like try to protect Johnny, even if she's messed up. But dad is often not present at all. And even if people who have dads, oftentimes they grew up without a dad, so they don't even know how to father. Yeah, yeah. Or dad's always at work, or dad's always in the garage, or dad's always off with his buddies, or dad's just stuck behind the TV or on a screen. Because he doesn't really know how to father. Yeah. So when, you know, I would love for you someday just to, you know, see uh, a video of what happens when I teach on fatherhood in first year school ministry with 1400 students in the room. Mm-hmm. There's rarely a dry eye in the room yeah. when I start talking about the need for father and what fathers should bring and the absence of fathers and people just begin to weep as daughters were never told by a, ma- a male that they are beautiful. Yeah. That they are loved, and, and they—if your daddy doesn't tell you that you're beautiful and you're loved, you start looking for male affection in the wrong places. Thus, we have—we we spawn a, a more immoral culture, not because I want sex, but because I'm starving for male affection. It's yeah. in me to need male affection, whether I'm a guy or a gal. Homosexuality, in my mind, is—is, is, uh, I, and I understand it's a much bigger issue, but. Uh, it, it part of the, the the foundation of I don't even know what gender I am is coming from the, a lack of identity which comes from fathers. So mm. yes, we need mothers. Of course, we need mothers. Just as importantly, we need mothers. But yep. the but the bigger the bigger deficiency in culture right now is dad. Dad's not home. Well, I hear you on that, Chris. Because I mean, I'm just as you're talking, I'm thinking of a handful of people who I've seen this week. And I mean, two of them yesterday, young men in their 20s talked about the horribly dysfunctional relationship they have with their dad and the number of young men walking around who have no relationship with their father or messed up relationship with their dad. And yeah, they they don't feel that way about their mom. I mean, I I was listening to a business um, speaker recently who just said the father wound is just a huge issue in business leaders where who who aren't healthy emotionally uh, so how do you how do you begin to meet that need in can, the context just, yeah yeah just jump one jump comment in. about that of course so we 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 gathered our city leaders now these are not believers these are the 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 chief of police the the sheriff the uh probation officer uh, the probation uh leader of probation the yeah. leader of the the jail so you get the idea 20 of them these are city leaders we gathered to talk about what is the number one issue in our city. The police chief, who is not a believer, said immediately, he raised his hand before we could we even start the conversation. He yeah. said, it's fatherhood. And everybody in there within three minutes, every single person in all the city leaders, from the wow. leader of the jail 
to the sheriff, to the probation, to social worker, to the head of the social. Every single person said it's fatherhood. My I mean, goodness. it wasn't even a hesit- It wasn't even a debate with twenty leaders who don't know each other in a room. So how how at <laughs> Bethel are you starting to address that? Like where you say uh, people come for one thing, but they stay for family. So how are you beginning to cultivate in 9,000 people? And obviously, that's just the people who are there in the room. You probably have 12,000, 15,000 who call your church yeah. home. How do, you, how do you begin to be spiritual fathers? How do you begin to cultivate family and community? That's a great question. And I would think that we start with this. We start by breaking the cohabiting spirit. Hmm. You, know, you know, Judas, Jesus said for three years, one of you will betray me. And we know that the, yeah. the frequency as he, as the last six months of his life increased, one of you betray me, one of you betray me. And the, and the disciples all, they couldn't figure out who, who would betray him. At the last supper, Jesus says again, right? One of you betray me. And then, uh, you know, Peter says to John, you know, ask Jesus if it's me. And, and John asked him if it's him. Yeah. And then Jesus says, let's make a covenant. When Jesus says, let's make a covenant, Judas says, time for me to leave. And he leaves during the covenant making. Think about this. Why? How did Judas, how did Judas define Jesus? He kissed him. Remember this? Yeah. He betrayed him with a kiss. Why? Because the cohabiting spirit wants intimacy without covenant. Mm. That's the Judas spirit. So how do you break the, the Judas spirit? How do you break the cohabiting spirit? Through covenant. So Bill and I made a covenant 16 years ago to spend the rest of our lives together. I'm not saying everyone should do that, but I'm saying there's something about leaders who are not in it for what they can get, but they're in it for what they can give. And we begin to actually lay our lives down for one another and say, we're in this for life, so we have to make it work. Wow. And I think there's there's something about teaching, I mean, laying a foundation in our leadership teams that we're not, we're, this isn't my career. I've come here to give my life up. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm not looking for like the next, you know, opening position. I'm, I'm here for this flock. This is my flock. Hmm. I'm here forever. And I, I'm not thinking about the next church thing I'm going to take or the next career move I'm going to make. I don't have a career. I have a calling. And I, I, I began to, I began to leave the whole idea that my ministry is a career and I begin to move into I'm a leader of a flock forever. Hmm. This is my flock. I'm a part I'm a father in this flock and I and and I'm with them forever. Whether there are twenty people or whether we're if whether there's a hundred thousand people like this this is my flock and this I'm I've dedicated my life to these people. And uh, often we want people to dedicate their lives to us, but we're but we're there, we're there as a career and not as a covenant. So it starts with a commitment among the leaders. And having been in the same community, literally five minutes from where I started uh, 22 years ago, there is something beautiful and gorgeous about being in the same place for a long time. It's hard. You go through seasons where you think about leaving oh. and where you're like, oh my gosh, Absolutely. how am I going to get through this? But there is something beautiful about that. And, and, you know, it's interesting in one of your messages, I think it was, there are a couple of great messages on, I think you called it a sense of belonging, um, yeah. that talk you gave. You even said to all these young adults who are gathered, hey, don't live together, make a commitment to each other. And 
you uh, find that kind of countercultural, you know, call has a ripe audience in in young adults. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's so countercultural. It's so funny. In at least in our culture, there are there are young people that have actually never heard someone say you should get married before you have sex. Right. Yeah. They, I, they I mean, they just like, haven't heard like, it. Like some, I'm, I'm some obviously many of them have. But I mean, many people, I mean, literally in the 21st century, you can find people that actually don't know that God wants them to marry before sex. Like, it's mm. not logical to them. Yeah. And why would it be apart from the Christian faith? I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense outside of a good theology. Yeah. And I, and I say to you know, them that, you know, that God gave the woman a hymen, which is a sack of blood, and because God wanted... The, a covenant to be made before children were conceived. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the goal was that that would happen one time, that the, the shedding of blood would happen one time in the sexual relationship, and that would begin the covenant. And I understand, you know, I've had numerous people write to me about the, you know, hymen and so on and so forth, but that was God's yeah. intention. It was the divine design. And so we talk, you know, we talk to our students every year and and also our church, we started doing this whole thing on, on a covenant and sexuality. Um, it's very difficult to, you know, talk about the dysfunctions of sexuality without when you don't teach people, you know, <laughs> about the functions. Sexuality. Yeah, yeah, about yeah, the, the functions, healthy, you know? the so healthy we all, expression. We all want to rant against the, you know, adulterer, you know, or the, you know, the, the homosexual issues that we have and same sexual attraction. It's like we've actually never taught people healthy sexuality. <laughs> Hmm. So, like, we shouldn't be surprised that they, they've never heard this before, you know? And so, so you yeah. teach on that, and you give them an Every, alternative to the life that the culture would have them live. I would say that the, the culture is giving them an alternative. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, no, that, we're, we're digging down to the foundation that we believe, you know, God is planted. You know, I'm just being funny. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, okay, so so you definitely come uh, personally, but also uh, at Bethel, uh, charismatic, heavily charismatic church. So I got a question for you. What do you think, because we have charismatics and non, you know, 80% yeah, of this audience so is American. Uh, we have charismatics, non-charismatics listening. What are the non-charismatics missing? Oh, uh, I, I want to make sure this doesn't sound accusational. I, no, no, no. I'm know, just curious. I, I, I wouldn't consider myself super charismatic. I've had moments um, where I have seen the supernatural. I've experienced, I've been involved, but like most of my days are pretty linear didactic days. <laughs> so I'm just, so, so I'm interested I'll, for me too. Uh, so first of all, I have to say before I answer this question that you know, I work a lot in the political and governmental world. So I work with non-believers. I work with, you know, non-charismatic believers. So I have great respect for everybody. And so I, I, I don't, I, even though I have strong convictions about the supernatural, obviously I, I, I was the co-founder of the Bethel School mm-hmm. of Supernatural Ministry. So, yeah. but, um, but I, I don't feel like people who are experiencing the supernatural, are like they're better Christians or anything like that. But let me, so let me answer your question now that I, laid a foundation for, sure. I am not a dogmatic, like, you don't... You're not even a Christian, right? Yeah, You're not exactly. one of those guys. I don't have any of that. Yeah. But I, I, would, I would ask the question, like, why would you want to just live in the first heaven when you could live from the third heaven? Because mm-hmm. every believer knows, if they know their Bible, that we have 
currently been seated in heavenly places with Christ. Yeah. So we live on earth and we live in heaven. That 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 is that's the reality that the way that we would maybe articulate that might be different. But I think we would agree that we are currently seated in heavenly places and mm-hmm. we are currently seated on earth. The question is do I live from earth to heaven or from heaven to earth? If I live from heaven to earth, if I live from earth to heaven then my prayers for instance are always reactive like they're always like about something that's already happened Hmm. typically you know johnny's sick okay it already happened but what if i live from heaven towards earth now my prayers become prophetic declarations and my words become worlds and now i am not living in reaction i'm actually i'm i'm actually co-creating with god i'm Mm -hmm. prophecy is, you know, for instance, I'm, I guess I should say this, prophecy is is telling the future, foretelling, and causing the future, forthtelling. So for instance, Ezekiel bone story, God brings Ezekiel to the dry bones, yeah. and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel's like, well, you know, and God says, prophesy to the bones. He's not prophesying about the bones, he's prophesying to the bones. Mm-hmm. In other words, he's not telling the future, he's causing the future. So my point is, is that why would you not want that in a world that desperately needs a transition? Like, why would you just want to pray to God? Of course you should. When you can also pray with God. Why Hmm. would you not? Why would you not want the gift of miracles when your friend needs a miracle? Why would you not want the gift of healing when your friend is sick? Why would you not want the gift of prophecy when your family's looking for direction for the future? So I'm like, this is not like the gifts are. I mean, obviously they're they're resident in the Holy Spirit, who's resident in you. But the desire for the gift is from love of the people that we that we lead and we influence. Mm. So I'm like, in my mind, and I, gosh, I wouldn't mean this the way it's going to come out of my mouth. It's almost selfish that we don't want the Holy Spirit's power working through us because it's not for us; it's for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's not about selfish gain. Yeah, why would yeah, of course. So why wouldn't you want it? Like why wouldn't you want to direct countries like Joseph did and Daniel did? Why would an inferior covenant, the the old covenant as as uh Hebrews 8 says, I think it's Hebrews 8, now I'm questioning myself, says that mm. the old covenant is obsolete and fading away. Why would a why would a inferior covenant have superior benefits? How are we going to make disciples of nations if Joseph and Daniel discipled in some ways? It, we'll, we'll just say it a little differently. Influenced, highly influenced the direction of nations, uh, uh, Gentile nations, through dreams and visions and, terp- and, and, and miracles. How would we think in the New Covenant, why would we think we don't need superior power in the New Covenant? When that's the only way that we saw discipled nations discipled in the old covenant under an inferior covenant, with um, you, you know what I'm trying to say there. Yeah, I do. I do know what you're trying to say. And so here, here's. I mean, we could spend literally days, weeks on this. And the purpose of this podcast is not to come out and favor you know the cessationists and the oh, yeah. neo reformers. You know, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just, I just want to understand, and because I'm curious and I'm interested, uh, 
How are you seeing this manifested at Bethel? I mean, I've seen some of the videos, I've, I've listened to some of the talks, but just walk us through, like, you told this powerful story, and I don't know, I'm putting you on the spot, I don't know whether you remember oh, it specifically, great. but you preached on it, about a, a woman who was completely crippled up, and a atheist husband at the back, who yeah. you called forward. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, walk us through that story. Yeah, yeah, and he and I asked him. I told him he was going to pray, and I and I was going to pray for her, like we do on prayer lines all the time. She was the last person mm. in the room, and uh, and the Holy Spirit said, "I'm not going to heal her through you. I'm going to heal her through her husband." I'm like, "Okay, mm. well, that's." I mean, it was a long day. I was exhausted. So I'm like, <laughs> "Fine, whatever. Let's just do this." And her husband was evidently, uh, 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 if he was a believer, I don't know. He seemed like an yeah. unbeliever, and he, you know, she finally went to get him. Of course, a lot longer story that I'm telling right now. And he came, he comes up uh, very like, you know, obstinate mm-hmm. and she is all like, I don't like, I don't know if she had severe arthritis or what she was in. So this is what I asked her. I said, what's your pain level? One to 10. She said, 11. I said, how often? She said, I've been 13 years in pain, 13 years. And she said, I am in pain day and night. I, I hardly ever sleep. I'm on. And, and she, she couldn't hardly move. Mm. She was she moved in agony. And so I'm like, okay, so I haven't, I, I, you know, I said, go with your husband. And she just looked at me like, oh, no, this is not work. Not him. <laughs> not him. Yeah, anyone but him, you know. Yeah. So he comes up finally after about 10 minutes. I wait a long time for him. We're the, la- we're the last ones in the sanctuary. And I say to him, you know, um, the Holy Spirit told me he's not going to heal your wife through me. He's going to heal her, her through you. So I want you to pray for her. He goes, I don't pray. I don't pray. <laughs> just like this. I don't pray. Right. And I said, I grabbed him by the hand and I go, well, you do now. And I, <laughs> I, I pulled him across the sanctuary. Now, just to be clear, he wasn't dragging. He was just resisting. Right, right. So I, you know, we have about a 20 foot walk and I grabbed him by the hand. I said, well, you do now. And I, I pull him across the sanctuary and I put his hand on his wife's shoulder and I say, pray this prayer. And he looks at me as if to say, I don't pray. He didn't hmm. say it. He just said, looked at me like, I don't pray. Right. I said, I said, pray this prayer, Jesus. And so he prayed this prayer, Jesus, you know, <laughs> and he prays like this obstinate prayer. That's about 10 words long, you know, heal my wife, heal my wife. And when we get to that part, he pulls his hand off. He stands back. And the short story is, and again, this is a really a beautiful, longer story, but she begins to, I have my eyes closed. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, Lord, I'm so sorry. If this guy gets healed, it'd be the greatest miracle since Lazarus coming out of the grave. <laughs> right, and, right. and she begins to move her legs and her arms. And she, and I hear her say to herself, well, I, I think the pain has gone in my arms and I open my eyes and she, and, and then not, she's not talking to me. She's talking to herself. Well, I think the pain has gone on my knees. Well, our normal pattern is, Hey, well walk, let's see what's happening. Yeah. But I, I'm, I go, you're kidding. And he keeps going, <laughs> no way, no way. And I go, are you sure? And he goes, you're kidding. I said, are you, sh-? I say, are you sure? He goes, you're kidding. I say, are you sure? And I, I'm like, I am stunned. I can't even, and she starts moving and, and, you know, and she's like, yeah. And then pretty soon she starts walking on her own. I, I just like, I'm standing there watching her. She starts walking. She's weeping and and crying and and then she takes off run. I know I'm supposed to go, well, maybe run, you know, or try to do something. To do. <laughs> I'm so stunned. And I, I must have said five times, are you sure? And he keeps going, no way. You're, you're kidding. 
and she takes off running around the sanctuary, wow. you know, and laughing and crying. And uh, so anyway, so they, you know, a few minutes later passed and, you know, of course I interview her and uh, she, she told me that she had this for 13 years. So anyway, she, they grab hands and they walk out. I mean, seriously, wow. this is all we need is a sunset, dude. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this yeah. <laughs> amazing. So I'm on my way home and I'm thinking, I, I mean, I've seen greater miracles as far as like mm-hmm. a tumor disappear or whatever, but I'm blind eyes open. But I mean, as far as like, I don't know if, if anyone had faith in that room. I certainly did not. He was like the kind of guy you'd put out of the room. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get out of here, she'll be healed, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On a good day, right? So I'm driving to my house, and I say, God, why did you How did, Why did you heal that man through him and not through me? And he said, he broke her. He could fix her. Huh. He broke her. He said, yeah. And I re- was remembering that 13 years ago, she said this started. Well, he said, the Lord told me 14 years ago, this man had an adulterous relationship. His wife found out. He repented. He's been faithful. But she's never trusted him again. So God said, so the man who broke her, I used to fix her. So not only did I heal her body, but I also healing their, their marriage. Crazy. That's amazing. That's Crazy. amazing. There's a, there's a video on YouTube right now of another lady who just got healed. She's in a wheelchair for two years. It's on. Uh, I was just thinking I could tell you her name so people could look, yeah. look it up. We'll link but to it. Name, uh, I'll give it to you real quickly here if I can find it. Yeah, her name is, the, well, the student that prayed for her is Jessica Butcher. But yeah, it's on video right now. Oh, it's uh, by Adam Braley, B-R-A-L-Y. Probably look it up on okay. YouTube. But that lady got out of a wheelchair and took off running. For wow. just, just just healed her right on the spot. But this girl, her testimony is on there that she's never prayed for anyone for healing prayed for this gal the gal got up by the wheelchair and started walking like why would you not want why would you not want this stuff like why would you not want to be a part of this stuff i'm so glad you gave that sample and i know you know there's probably multiple reactions going on you've got people going see i told you and other people are going no way and other people are like i'm not even sure that's christianity and i'm just like I'm so grateful stories like that happen, that, that no, re- events, events like that happen. And this is something that you've seen year after year, oh, you yeah. know, day after day. Thousands. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus is the one who said, you know, to the disciples, he said, you know, go heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, say the kingdoms come near you. You know, Mark 16, uh, Mark 11, you know, uh, these are the signs who follow those who believe, you know, not leaders who believe, those mm-hmm. who believe. And you know, and the book of Acts, the, the the disciples, the apostles, they they did miracles everywhere they went. Had angel visitations, you know, miracles, healings, and I mean, this is like how how do you separate the supernatural from the book of Acts? Like a great experiment, get an old Bible that you you know you could throw away a paper one and cross out all the miracles that are in the book of Acts. Hmm. You're going to find that three quarters of the book of Acts is gone. <laughs> wow! Wow! Right, uh, literally, like yep. if you if you a miracle, yeah. if you crossed out the miracle and the re, and and the response to the miracle, like that, you got to get rid of most of Acts. Mo- most of the book of Acts is gone. So I'm like, this is <laughs> like, why would you not want this, Chris? This is <laughs> this is amazing. You've got a brand new book called Destined to Win, and yeah. um, it's all about how to embrace your God given identity and realize your kingdom um, purpose. 
Uh, you've written a lot of books, haven't you? You've got yeah, 13. How many? 13. 13. That's, that's yeah. incredible. So uh, I know that leaders can connect with you there. Where else can they find you online, Chris? They can find me at Chris Valentin. That's K R I S V A L L O T T O N dot com. And uh, if you just Google my name, it'll come up. Yeah, that's great. It's kind of like Newhoff. There's not a whole lot of impersonators out there, right? <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> we got some detractors. Yeah. Chris, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Well, we're going to be fascinated to see what God continues to do at Bethel and in your life and ministry. And I love the fact that you've covenanted to be there forever and uh, seeing God use you in powerful ways. Thank you, Chris. God bless you, man. Wasn't that refreshing? I, I just love that conversation with Chris. And you know what? There's a lot more where that came from. In fact, we do this every Tuesday, as you know, listeners. So if you haven't subscribed yet, do that. Here's the reality. I've, I've been wanting to listen to Shauna Nequest podcast now for like two or three months since it came out. And I keep seeing it, but I haven't subscribed. So I am actually going to subscribe to her podcast. Actually, I hope to have her as a guest at some point in the future. And, uh, then I'm going to listen to it while I go riding. How does that sound? So, you know what? Maybe you stumbled on this accidentally. Um, good news is subscribing's free. If you haven't done it yet, do it wherever you get your podcasts. And um, leave a rating and review. We've had almost 500 so far. When you do that, it gets the word out to other people. And speaking of what's coming up, we got some fun stuff coming up. My interview, a lot of you have been asking, with Eugene Peterson is coming down the pipe uh, within a month. And I'm also going to sit down with Mark Batterson and Adam Weber and talk about Eugene's legacy. That's going to be a fascinating episode. Next week, I'm sitting down with three people I've met over the last couple of years, Chad Merrill, Paul Smith, and Philip Thurman. And they are doing rural multi-site. And we do a fascinating, super nerdy, like how can multi-site church work in rural settings in smaller congregations with limited resources, it's going to blow your mind. It's amazing. It could be, it could be like new life and new hope for your church. So you don't want to miss that. In fact, here's an excerpt. We hold tightly to the DNA things that, that make us the same. We to- mm-hmm. hold tightly to the mission and, and the things that we've defined as the win and the unique, uh, the unique right. expression of the church here at First West. But we have to hold loosely and give a lot of permission to key leaders who understand those hubs and passions in the unique context to to uh, exact those in the most uh, efficient way and effective way within very different communities. And so we we uh, we we tend to function over an, an overarching theme with a lot of room for uniqueness in in methodology. And I think that's really key, especially when you start spreading out across like Philip four hours or or mm-hmm. the, the diversity in town sizes like Paul and I are dealing with. Um, that, that seems to be one of, the, one of the things that we stumbled upon that's a big mm-hmm. win for us. So that's coming next week. There's a fresh episode every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe for free. We've also got Mark Clark from Vancouver, British Columbia coming up. This guy's a phenomenal leader. Clay Scroggins is going to talk all about uh, how to lead when you're not in charge. And we got a lot more coming down the pipe for the fall. So hang on for that. Subscribe for free. In the meantime, I hope you really, really enjoy your week. Thanks again to the Unstuck Group and also to TrainedUp.Church for their partnership and all this. They make sure that you get this at top quality for free. And we're back next Tuesday. In the meantime, have a fantastic week. And I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. 
Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.